welcome back to my podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. I'm Brian, and I hope you've been following along with us as we walk through the book of Matthew. If you haven't been, then I'm glad you tuned in, and I encourage you to check us out on Facebook to get the latest reading chapters, blog posts, and occasionally a goofy little amateur YouTube video. Last episode, we covered the people's rejection of God's message and God's messenger, which were both indicative of a rejection of God himself. We also covered two of the most well-known miracles of Jesus, feeding the 5,000 plus and his walking on water. Today we are looking at Matthew chapter 15. This chapter has some similarities to the previous chapter with the authoritative teachings, miraculous healings, and divine feedings that we are going to read about. So some of it might sound familiar. That's good though. We should take note of these things and these things that the biblical authors were divinely inspired to underline for us. They want us to notice the similarities. If you were to ask me to provide a one-sentence theme for the events in this chapter, it would be that what matters most is in our hearts and that Jesus is greater than any worldly situation that we might try to put there instead. Both chapters 15 and 16 begin with verbal confrontations between Jesus and the Jewish religious elite of that time. We've seen confrontation before, but as we march closer to the last week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week, These confrontations are going to grow more and more frequent. They will start to take on the tone of a drumbeat beating toward an inevitable climactic event when Jesus will be arrested, tried, and crucified. We need to start to read that tension into all of these dialogues. This chapter starts with a confrontation over the significance of religious traditions and the authority of the laws of scripture. Jesus is confronted about why his disciples appear to be breaking with the tradition of the elders over hand washing before breaking bread together. The tradition was that without washing your hands before eating, you would make the food you ate unclean, which upon eating would then make you unclean. Jesus' response aims straight at their practice of elevating human oral tradition to a level higher or equal to that of scripture. They were really comfortable calling out others who deviated from their tradition, but struggled with hypocrisy when it came to being called out for breaking God's laws. They considered themselves righteous in their words and outward lifestyles, but Jesus takes them to task for their hearts. He even quotes Isaiah 29 in Matthew 15 verses 8 and 9 when he says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine rules made by men. Human hearts are what is broken, and human hearts in our brokenness tend toward pridefulness. In the midst of that pridefulness, We have to constantly be aware of the pull within us to elevate our own rules and traditions to the level of biblical doctrine. The the Pharisees had created an environment where it was no longer God's word alone, but instead God's word plus human tradition, and Jesus is quick to point out how dangerous that is. Traditions might be fine, but whether you're a first century Pharisee or a modern day Christian, When you start to decry violations of tradition that aren't biblical truth, then you're starting to create a dangerous game. 
It threatens to proclaim God with our lips while we are running from him in our hearts. Picking up in verse 10, it says, He summoned the multitude and said to them, Hear and understand. That which enters into the mouth doesn't defile the man, but that which proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered, Every plant which my heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides to the blind. If the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter answered him, Explain the parable to us. So Jesus said, Do you also still not understand? Don't you understand that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the belly and then out of the body? But the things which proceed out of the mouth come out of the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart come forth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual sins, thefts, false testimony, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile the man. In verses 10 through 20, Jesus continues to aim at the heart. He points out the causality problem that exists in the Pharisees' train of thought. They thought that things pouring into the body defiled it and made it unclean. Jesus is saying you've got it all wrong. Men are made unclean and defiled by what already exists in our hearts. Man's thoughts and man's desires and our sinful behavior stem from a heart problem that exists within us. Your diet and food preparation routines aren't going to change that. This is why large sections of the Old Testament speak to the heart surgery that is required inside of us at the hands of God. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 30, Moses says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. In Jeremiah 24 verse 7, the Lord says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And in Ezekiel 11, verses 19 and 20, the Lord reiterates, I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my rules, and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Those three verses were from the ESV translation, by the way. But throughout the Old and New Testaments, we are reminded the problem at the center of humanity is the problem of a rebellious and sinful heart. Because of this, we could never achieve a righteousness of our own apart from God graciously stepping in to make our unclean hearts clean, to wash away our defilements and present us blameless and healed. Thankfully for those who have faith, this is where Jesus steps into the situation and makes unclean things clean. He heals the brokenness in our hearts, he washes away that which defiles us, and he presents us blameless before the Father. It's not about following traditions that make us outwardly appear clean. It's about recognizing the uncleanness that God's word reveals in us, and then handing that to Jesus to allow him to transform us. Up to this point, Jesus had primarily been addressing Jewish audiences and groups that he termed the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Then in this chapter, he heals a Canaanite woman's daughter. It's apparent that this woman had faith in who Jesus was. After just rebuking Peter for his little faith last chapter, Jesus tells this woman, great is your faith. Matthew is specifically identifying this woman as a Canaanite. Canaanites were considered pagan and deplorable by the Jewish community. In the eyes of most Jewish nationalists, they were enemies of Israel. Jesus' disciples even begged Jesus to send this woman away. Such was the risk of being affiliated with fraternizing with this Canaanite woman. By opening the blessing to Gentiles, people of non-Israelite descent, Jesus is highlighting that the new Israel is not based on bloodline, that that membership into God's kingdom was based on faith in Jesus alone. This woman addressed Jesus as the Lord, son of David. She kneels before Jesus. If you listened to last episode, we might remember that after Jesus calms the sea, the disciples worship him. The word worship had connotations associated with kneeling down in recognition of a superior. This woman is kneeling down before Jesus, recognizing him as having authority over demons and diseases. She also recognizes Jesus as Lord. By pleading with Jesus, Lord, help me, or Lord, have mercy on me, there is a hyperlink back to Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, which says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. She also uses the Messianic title, Son of David. So remember back in Matthew 1.1, Jesus, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham? That title that she uses recognizes Jesus as the one who came from that line, who would be a blessing to people from all nations, and whose kingdom would be everlasting. Tying the idea of the son of David to the lost sheep of Israel is interesting, and it recalls Ezekiel 34, when God is rebuking the poor shepherds of Israel and proclaims in the ESV translation, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So it connects Jesus' work as the work of the one true shepherd that God the Father would anoint over Israel, the new and greater David. Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Verses 29 through 31 continue to describe the many miraculous healings that Jesus performed. As with previous healing passages like this, we see the crowds react with wonder, amazement, and glorifying God the Father. We still don't see the crowds react in worship of Jesus, though. The images of this passage should sound familiar and striking. Jesus walks up on a mountainside and he sits down waiting. After he's seated, the crowds come up to him to be healed. He's literally up on a mountain in the middle of nowhere when these huge crowds come from far and wide to be healed by Jesus. Think about it. The people trekking into the wilderness and scaling this mountain for an audience with Jesus were not young and healthy adventurers. Imagine the scene of lame, blind, and crippled men and women being led or carried up the mountain to be set at his feet and to be healed. So I love hiking up mountains. The work is hard with just myself and a backpack. For someone without the use of their legs, who had to rely on others to carry them up, this was an incredible undertaking. 
Some of the most mesmerizing views I've ever experienced in person have come from the top of mountains. So imagine the visual of Jesus healing a blind man, and the first thing that he sees is Jesus. Then the second thing he gets to set his eyes on is to take in the amazing landscape of God's creation from on top of a mountain. This imagery is fascinating to me, but it's also important for understanding the end of the chapter. In verse 32, Jesus says he has compassion for the crowds who have journeyed out to him. He follow, they followed him for days, and they had not received enough to eat at all. The Bible says there were over 4,000 men, not counting any women and children who were present. As is normal, Jesus' compassion is backed by action. Instead of sending the crowds away hungry and in peril, he desires to feed them. Keep in mind, this is shortly after Jesus just fed over 5,000 people in chapter 14. But his disciples, who never cease to surprise, ask, Where should we get so many loaves in a deserted place as to satisfy so great a multitude? I mean, I guess they get credit for consistency as they constantly doubt what Jesus can do. But that's a different conversation. Here in chapter 15, Jesus is given seven loaves of bread and a few fish, which he miraculously dispenses across all the people present, even collecting seven baskets full of leftover bread. Seven. Seven is the number of completion and fullness in ancient Hebrew. And it's interesting that this miracle closely parallels the feeding of the 5,000 which occurred around Israelites. This miraculous feeding among the region of Canaanites might have included many non-Israelites also. Maybe there's something of note that Jesus is now offering the Gentiles what was previously offered to the Israelites, namely the bread of life. After this miracle, Jesus sends the crowds away, boards a boat, and relocates to the region of Magadan. Hopefully this chapter helps to see the peril of our own hearts and of clinging to our own traditions while rejecting God's true word. Instead, we have to lean into Jesus. This chapter underlines that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. He is the Son of Man, the Messianic Son of David, the one with authority over the spiritual and physical realms, the one who is a blessing to all the nations, and the only one who can transform human hearts and make us clean. In Matthew chapter 1, God tells Joseph to name his son Jesus, for it is he who shall save his people from their sins. And it's Jesus himself who announces in Matthew chapter 9 that he is the son of man who has been granted authority on earth to forgive sins. Lean into God's word, lean into Jesus, seek him through faith. He is the only one that can rescue and forgive our sins. Thank you for listening. Next episode, we'll jump into chapter 16. If you're not already doing so, please follow us on the From Hevel to Eternity Facebook group to keep up to date on all my latest podcasts, videos, and blog posts. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is in public domain. There were a couple in there that I called out as being from the English Standard Version, or ESV Bible Translation. That's a copyright of Crossway, a publishing ministry of good news publishers. Until next time, I love y'all. Thank you.